0: Hey, how's it going?
1: It's good. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Um, So I'm going to say this right from the start. Um, I feel like a little kid doing this because (laughs) I looked up to you uh, when I started playing. And at the time, you were playing pro and uh, playing for the men's national team. So this, for me, is a huge thing. So I greatly appreciate it.
1: Right on. It's my pleasure.
0: So... um, (laughs) I'll let you introduce yourself for those that either, that don't know, which I'm sure everyone watching does, but um, just a little bio, kind of just a little introduction.
1: Yes, my name's Reed Pretty. Um, I am 42 years old. I've got a wife. Uh, Her name is Lindsay. Uh, She's great. And I've got two kids, Caden and Scarlett, Uh, nine and five are their ages and uh, live in Huntington Beach, have for over 10 years. And I... Uh, played volleyball. So I played indoor volleyball for 16 years, four Olympic games, two medals. And then I transitioned to beach volleyball. And now I'm, I'm a founder of a startup company called In Sand. And we just got off the beach for some workouts and it's a hybrid between fitness and uh, volleyball movements all done on the greatest training surface out there, sand.
0: So I know. Um... I've been following you since you transitioned from indoor to beach and I know you've kind of been in and out between both. Um, I've been lucky enough to live in Myrtle beach. So I actually had that luxury. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What, what made you transition into sand and create the company?
1: Well, that sounds like two questions to me. The first question is what made you transition? And uh, so when I started playing volleyball, when I was 15, um i uh always played uh volleyball was the staple the surface always changed so we played on grass we played on rug uh we played on hardwood um and we played at the beach right so there was never this distinction of like oh are you an indoor player it was just like hey we play volleyball and it's just how many people do we have four let's go to the beach let's go play grass uh Let's play, uh, you know, I say rug because uh, there was a lot of LDS guys um, in our area in Phoenix. Um, I wasn't, but they had keys to the, to the auditorium where we'd set up a net and play on yeah. rug. Uh, so um, beach was always something that I loved. I, I gravitated towards the beach when I was young, uh, started surfing when I was young. And um, indoor sort of took me by surprise. So I almost feel like I was a beach player first and then indoor kept getting better um i get kept getting better the salaries overseas kept increasing and every time ever after every olympic games i would peer over the fence and uh beach volleyball was sort of going this way and indoor volleyball was going this way so it never made sense but by the time i got to my last pro season in italy 2016 uh it was right before the olympic games i remember i was playing for a team called macerata um lube uh and one of the top teams out there uh we had a good contract we had a great organization which is hard to come by in in europe but uh we had uh i just remember driving to practice just being like man there's a good physio here there's a good doctor here there's a good weight room here there's a good like the fans are good we're getting paid this is a great city and then as soon as i said to myself man i think i could do this for another four or five years and just not play on the national team just golf in the summer and as soon as I said that thought, the other thought met it. And it was that my wife was in this small apartment in Italy with two kids, no friends, and no family, no help with these two small kids. And that was when really it made sense to me that like, you know what, I need to shift. My son's about to be in kindergarten. I need, I, I, they can't just keep following me around. This is a fun lifestyle, but let's plant some roots. And that's when I started to make the decision now, to answer the second question, um, once I made the transition, what the sand did to my body was what led me to start in sand. Um, I, I was on ibuprofen every day to play indoor, and as soon as I went to the beach, uh, I, didn't take, I haven't taken any more ibuprofen since. Yeah. Uh, and sand has this thing of, of making your muscles move. Uh, without impact to your joints. And then it's a cardio thing too, plus it's fun. So you add all these elements and I gained five pounds of lean muscle mass. Uh, I felt great and I was having fun and I was just like, why? Like this has got to be the best kept secret here. What's the deal? We got to get more people training on
0: sand. Yeah, oh, lost you for a second. Go, okay. uh, no, I mean, I completely agree because I know I, even, I, don't, I don't get to play beach a lot just because of the schedule and everything. Um, so it gets, I mean, it gets a little crazy. They're always, always running around back there. <laughs> but when I do get the chance, I go play tournaments. Um, I'll go play outside, um, try to get in the sand as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So it gets, it gets fun when I can, because I do, I do push those physical limits a lot faster. Um, I do realize indoor sometimes, like, I don't have that bounce anymore, mm. you know, that, you know, I might have had towards college or right outside of college when I was lifting five, six times a week, and then I was practicing or coaching, and, I mean, I feel the exact same way, so mm-hmm. I try to transition my kids as well, you know, let's go do conditioning in the sand at least, you know, let's mm-hmm. get off a of hardwood, let's get off a of turf, um, yeah. let's try and incorporate weights, resistance bands, something. To where we are moving and incorporating all of those things, um, what I mean, I, it's not really a question because from what I see you do, and I know what I do, it's not about work anymore. It's about something you love doing, mm-hmm. and I, that's what that's what makes it a lot better. Mm-hmm. I I know personally when I get up and I have those now I have those five a.m. days or six a.m. days, and you're kind of like I'm looking forward to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: I have. to 7.30 lift with five athletes before they go to school. And I'm up at five, drive 40 minutes, do that. I've got, I teach all day and then come back Mm -hmm. and, you know, by three o'clock, yeah, I'm tired. But that 5.00 AM feels so different now getting up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure it does for you too. You know, you're, you're now focusing on just playing AVP, you know, AVP tour and just training and, you know, you you have a lot more relaxed schedule, I'm sure, now compared to the pro schedule.
1: Well, from the volleyball standpoint, yes, but from the business standpoint, you know, now I'm with you waking up at five, you know, running, you know, we're doing classes down at the beach, but, um, you know, my my big thing was uh, when, I, when I finished playing on the national team, you know, I, that was one environment that I was in for 16 years. So, that's like, um, you know, like going to college four times. And that became my normal. And it wasn't until I was outside of that normal where I started to recognize what was actually normal. And I started to see how, uh man, you know, people ask me, how did you go to four Olympic games? And I, I would have answered it differently at different times of my life. But post Rio, when I retired, it was like, man, it was the team. It was the team atmosphere that was the X factor. It was the team that, um, like that dynamic I think is where we as humans thrive is when we're in the context of team. And and then I started to look around at our environment and it was like, you know, there's a lot of fitness gyms out there, but there's not a team vibe. You know, CrossFit has done a good job of capturing the communal feel, but, um, I I started to think through and I started to speak more to different in different uh, venues. And I was sharing my story. And my story, um, was that I learned, character through sport and as I really thought through my story I thought that like man me being good at a sport even though I was you know I was good at volleyball um, that's that what that's not required to get the benefits of what sports gives you does that make sense yet in America especially there's such limited opportunities for people to be engaged in a team and be engaged in sport Um, and so that was the other reason why we started in San was to try to capture uh, like sports just aren't for kids, um, you know, and how do we keep, how do we create team environments for uh, the adult, you know, the, the, the person who's working 40 hours a week and um, how do we make it easy for them to be able to opt in to, uh, to come train and to feel that they're being coached to feel that they're uh, being supported and challenged uh, in the context of, of a team. And um, uh, I think that's what, when we start to connect with those elements that are bigger than ourselves and we feel connected to something, uh, I think that our entire life, every facet of our life um, is improved. And uh, so that's what we're trying to capture. Yeah.
0: I mean, and that's why I try and do the same thing with training. Um, Before we even get to practice, a lot of my athletes, I do have weight room. Um, I really harp on those, you know, those interconnections when it comes to, Uh, those morals and values. I mean, I've got a lot of teenage athletes and so it's really on social media. It's on what are you doing outside of here? You know, how do you act when, you know, I'm not around or your teammates aren't around. And I mean, for me, the weight room has taught me so much on top of athletics Mm -hmm. and, and the idea of pushing those boundaries. And you get to a lot of times you get to that breaking point and you find out more and more and more about yourself. Um, which you know you add that pressure, in. you know you add that pressure in of either going up in weight or this is a taxing movement or this is a new movement, you know. And I love the the first statement that I have a lot of young athletes do is you know I don't want to look stupid, mm-hmm. and but they go well unless I'm saying something to you that's correcting you, just try it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, you know, be vulnerable. It's okay to be vulnerable. Like go out and do something, and then you know maybe if you feel like it's wrong go get guidance Mm -hmm. and I mean, and that's why when it comes down to it, I love putting new things, maybe not every week, but getting them to where they're in a constant, not a constant changing environment, but something that makes them think every single week or Mm -hmm. every single lift, whether it's just getting good at one little movement or getting good at something completely new. And I know with pressure, as they get older, the pressure, I'm not sure if it's just scaled, or if it's just they're getting used to it, so one extra thing, one extra thing, one extra thing. Um, when it comes to when you played from college to um, the pros and even on the national team, was your pressure really higher or was it just scaled to, you know, what you were used to?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Like the you know, if I'm a sophomore in college, am I feeling the same level of pressure as when I'm a pro? Because when you're in college, it's just as big, right? It's the stakes are just as high. Um, I would say that um, I think pressure does mount, you know, when it's your job. Um, you know, think about the Olympics for, for, you know, for example, like the highest The most pressured match that I've ever played in has been uh, the quarterfinal of an Olympic Games. And the reason why it's the most pressure packed is that you did what you needed to do to get there, but it's just one match. And uh, you win that match, you have two chances to compete for a medal. You lose that match and you're totally out. So um, you know, in 2004, my first Olympic experience we were all but eliminated in that quarterfinal match. We were playing Greece, in Greece, in Athens, 15,000 people going bananas. Uh, They were up two games to one and up 20 to 12 in the fourth set against us. And literally the music was playing, they were dancing, they thought it was over and we ended up coming back and winning. Um, Then flash forward to um, uh, Beijing, we're playing Serbia, and we go all the way to sixteen fourteen in the in the fifth set, two points decide. So imagine for, working for four years at something, and it comes down to two points. Then uh, we go and we go on to win gold in that. And then in twenty twelve, we were actually I thought arguably one of the best teams in that Olympic Games. And we get through pool play in number one. We had one blemish against Russia. We should have won in three. We ended up losing in five, but we come back and. Um, we're playing against Italy, and they just had a great game. They, you know, we were the top of our pool; they were the bottom of their pool. They just have put together one great game, and now our Olympics is over. And so, I think that that level of pressure is is obviously different because it's it the frequency is lower. So, to me, when you're what really dictates how much pressure people are feeling is probably the frequency of the game that you're in. If you're in a regular season game, well, there's probably two of those a week it has a certain level of pressure. If you're in the playoffs, that's happening once every year. So that pressure would increase. Uh, And then of course, if you're playing in something that's every two
0: or every four years,
1: then all of a sudden, um, you're gonna feel that.
0: Yeah, like, kind of speak on what, what it's like to train four years for one moment. Because I know I have a lot of kids that, you know, they always worry about tryouts every single year, you know, they always worry about how, how they're going to do weekly, you know, is my lift, you know, this lift wasn't good. Like, and I try to convey to them when, especially when they pose the question of can I play in college? They, they want to take that next step mm-hmm. is, you know, you, you have to look at a big picture and what it really means to capture that moment and work for one small, one small or one really big goal.
1: I, th- <clears throat> Well, the way I would answer that question, Anthony, is that the, the, the uh, tryout moment, what I notice in young players is that they are so overly focused on their skill. Mm-hmm. And if I was choosing a team, um, if you're going to come play on my team, I'm going to teach you the skill. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I don't really care how good you are right now. What I care about is your character. Um, if I put you in a drill, are you going to be one of those people who are too worried about looking stupid and not look looking cool? Like you just mentioned, that would be a yellow flag to me. Um, are you giving me attitude or pushback? Um, are you too good for a certain drill? Um, or are you a hard worker? Are you, are you talking to your, are you helping those next to you? Are you thinking about this being a six person game, not a one person game? Those are all the ways in which and I get the business of junior sports that, you know, it's about private lessons and uh, leveling up and parents are so overly involved. And, um, you know, I would just love to just breathe a little bit of, of, of um, I don't know, hope, uh, not hope. What am I looking for? Just air, just relax. Yeah. don't worry so much about, um, you know, I used to try to be perfect. And then I had a coach, Hugh McCutcheon, say, Reed, being perfect, that's a selfish endeavor. We're not asking you to be perfect. Um, you know, we want you to work hard and uh, we want you to be a great teammate yeah. and, and never give up. And so to me, those are, are really the moments. But as it relates to putting a big goal way out in the future, I think it's a great Um, It's a great thing, you know, Tony Robbins is quoted as saying, as humans, we overvalue what we can do in one year, but we totally undervalue what we can do in 10. And I think that's a great thought exercise to think to myself like, okay, if I made marginal gains in all of these categories, where could I be in two years, four years, Um, let me put that on the calendar, and then maybe my, my week to week isn't so Richter scale. Because uh, I know that I'm just, I'm, I'm going this way. Like, you know, if you have a younger audience, um, you know, they're not making investments in the stock market, right? But those that do make investments in the stock market, if you look at it every day, you're going to get sick into your, your stomach, especially during a pandemic, because mm-hmm. it's going up and down. But the science says that over time, there's going to be great growth. So can we bring that concept into our journeys as a- athletes? And just know that, like, hey, if I'm putting in the right attitude, mindset, and effort, then I'm going to – the return on that investment is is going to be positive. Okay.
0: Yeah, and that's what I try and get – I I try and tell all my athletes, and the ones that end up staying with me in training, it's not always about I don't get along. It's – I always try and bring it back to, you know, those are the ones that will open up and are willing to be – molded in a certain way and they understand that it's not about them. Mm -hmm. It's about becoming a bigger person and a better person. And it's more about, you know, what can I do to help the person next to me get better? And that's why I've always told in tryouts is I'm not per se, like you said, looking for the best skilled athlete. I want to get a group of eight, nine, 10 girls together that flows and has really good chemistry that. Like, I had a training yesterday um, when I had one athlete walk in, another one turn around and go, oh, my God, look who's here. Chased chase her down, gave her a big hug. And I had one of my leaving 18 says, that's what you want for a team. I didn't even have to say it. And I mm-hmm. said, that's perfect. And that's, that's. I mean, I don't think you could have said it any better how you said it because that's really it. It's all mm-hmm. about the character. Because mm-hmm. you can learn anything at any age. yes the right teacher mm-hmm.
1: that's great yeah 100 percent.
0: so i know like on the whole chasing perfection um the one note i have down is be really good at, at your job and you'll outlast or out hustle your competition i mean and i know i've heard i've heard the whole idea of perfection and that yeah it's a selfish uh freight. I have more and more kids that you know they want to make everything look good they want mm-hmm. to make everything flashy and I've always said the you know you're passing or whatever it is it doesn't really have to be pretty like if it's solid, it's basic that's fine, but as long as we're accomplishing our goal, that's what I'm more worried about. you know mm. I want to see if if for some reason we plummet and You know, we're 20, you know, we're up 24, 20 and we lose 26, 24. I want to see how you handle that. Mm -hmm. And I know with the amount of years you've put in just in the pro side, um, even before playing and everywhere you've been, what's been the biggest life lesson you've learned with handling all of that? Because I know you have to have more failures than anything else in order Mm -hmm. to learn so, what's been some of the bigger things that have kind of kept you moving forward and have really taught you?
1: Yeah, great question. So, um, two things come to mind. The first thing is that uh, in my journey, my journey is not like unlike my journey is not unlike most. Where uh, when you truly look back backwards, and if I was to say like, how would I define my career? Uh, I would absolutely define it by what I lost, not by what I won. And what I mean by that is that in the moments of catastrophic failure, not making the 2000 Olympic team, I was the alternate, one of the last ones cut, um, not earning a medal in 2004, uh, we got fourth place. Uh, It was these moments, uh, the ACL injury uh, that I suffered in 2014, it was these moments that created the environment or the opportunity for me to respond in a way that made me better. So I started to recognize that setback is actually the recipe. It's the starting place to where major fundamental catalytic change takes place, which leads to the wins. So, um, where, where can I get, where's ground zero for the gold medal Well, it's not making the team and not earning a medal. So those two things, when I didn't make the team, I was then ready, because I wasn't pre-2000, I was not ready to move away from family and friends to pursue volleyball, I wasn't there. But because I was there for a short amount of time, I saw the entire emotional excitement and build up to go to Sydney, Um, I saw all of the hype and the excitement, and I was on the bus with the team when they, and we went to the airport together, and we were all on the same flight going to LAX and then they went to Sydney and I stayed in LAX. Um, That was a hard moment, that was devastating, but that made me now ready. I was now open to sacrificing time and space to pursue this, to be on the right side of the roster next time. Uh, Now, when we lost the medal, I added to that, now I was ready to invest everything. Okay, now I've been to this thing, I've gone to the medal rounds and I've come up short. Now I'm ready to go all in. I'm literally ready to leverage everything that I have at my disposal to try to win a medal. And that's what set me up. So when I look at being a part of a gold medal winning team, it was the losses of my journey that helped me be ready to uh, contribute to that. I think the last thing I'll say is I think the athletes today have a very difficult hurdle to jump over and that's with social media and so what do we do with social media well we're always narrating our own lives mm-hmm. and we are always trying to better than it really is yeah so filters language look how much fun I'm having like I'm the happiest person ever I'm super popular on I'm, I'm all these I mean all these different places look how many followers I have look how many likes I'm getting so yep. all of this superficial stuff that's all based around a fake narration of my actual real existence, how is that leading and leaking into our athletic performances? I think it's making us worry about all the wrong things. How am I looking out, out externally? Oh, I just made a error. That's going to make me feel weird. Or, or I don't I, – you know, so chasing perfection I think might have something to do with our online lives. And so I think yep. I'm a huge proponent of – of being a consistent human, meaning I'm the same person Monday morning as I am on Friday night, as I am on Sunday morning. And uh, I think it's very difficult if you're trying to become a a an athlete that's pursuing your max potential, yet you're um, engaging in activities that are counterproductive to growth as a human, I think you're gonna limit yourself.
0: Well, yeah. and I know, um... And it's funny you stated that the way you did, because I was actually listening to Simon Sinek's S- S- talk on that this morning um, mm. and listening to his, well, uh, I think it's top five rules to live by. And mm. um, and even watching your talk with him as well. Um, and it's all about kind of growing internally and being able to stand on your own two feet. And to, like, you know, even when I post stuff on Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, it's, it's real. It's not, there's, there's nothing misconstrued. There's nothing changed. You know, there's an edit here and there. Maybe I'm going to chop it down in time or something or no audio, but you know, that's simple stuff. But Mm -hmm. the, we'll say the ugliness of the moment is out there for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of things like even right now when i first posted the very first episode of this podcast I hated hearing myself talk but I got so comfortable with it realizing I'm doing this and so many people are seeing it so Mm -hmm. whether it's five people or 5,000 you know Mm -hmm. I'm putting that out there so that was another jump for me Mm -hmm. and um, I actually just got a question for you Um, with your ACL injury how did you bounce back um, you know from Olympic game to Olympic games or from pro season to pro season and kind of get back on that horse.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it came at an interesting time for me in my career. It was, 20, it was 2014 and uh, I, was, I had sort of played long enough to see uh, a lot of my contemporaries that I won a gold medal with phase out of the team for one reason or another. And I was kind of the, one of the old guys, right? And I just remember thinking like I didn't have total clarity on where I fit with the team. Um, and it was uh, we were on our way to Bulgaria. And I wanted to make sure that like if I stayed with the national team, it was because I was needed. Um, it was because I I found a role for me um, and a contribution that I could make, not just because of my skill. Uh, because now all of a sudden, you know, what I was like, 36, 37 years old. Now we have 22 year olds on the team. That's a big gap. So we go to Bulgaria, and uh, we had a, a back-to-back doubleheader. And on the first night, uh, I'm in the locker room. It's dark. It's dingy. I mean, you could imagine it. It's got the you know uh, water drips going on. Uh, you know, so I'm in this I'm in this dark dungeon almost of a locker room, and I'm just like thinking to myself, like, man, am I done? Like, what am I doing? Like, what's the deal? So I kind of walk tie it like lace up. I walk through the hallway and all of a sudden I'm starting to hear the music and then the lights come on and then I come out and I warm up. Now 10,000 Bulgarians are starting to fill the stands. The music's really getting going. My adrenaline starts to kick up and now all of a sudden we're lined up on the uh, end line for the national anthem and you know adrenaline pumping, endorphins flowing, sweat pump. You know I was Like, okay, this is why I do this. You know, Bulgaria is a great team. I'm going to have to bring it tonight uh, for us to win. And uh, I've got a bunch of guys here. They might be younger than me, but they're all great. Like, this is, I'm in. This is cool. We ended up going down 0-2 and 1-5. And I remember after that match thinking to myself, like, I get it now. I know where I need to fit on this team. I need to be the glue. Like, my contributions are not going to show up on the stat sheet anymore. Um, we've got higher flyers, harder hitters, you know, younger legs, fresher legs, but I've seen it all. I've seen everything that, that there's, there's out there to see, and I'm ready to sort of lead this team from the back, you know, so to speak. So when we went, uh, the next night, all of a sudden, you know, that dark dingy locker room, like I'm filled with vision and excitement about the future. We get out there on the gym and we're up two games to one, the game's almost over. And that's when I tear my ACL. And so I think if I didn't have the previous night, the clarity and vision of what I could do and my contributions for this team, coming back would have been so much harder, but I had that. And so that's what I was working towards. How do I get back to, um, to be able to fulfill the vision that I had um, that I thought was out there for me. Now, obviously it took two years of just total grind and yep. my body was fighting back. I have a friend that plays for the Chargers had two, and uh, let's see, no, uh, October and December. October was his first ace, uh, Achilles, and December was his second Achilles, so two Achilles surgeries. And uh, he was texting me yesterday just saying like, man, I'm getting set back. Every time I get going, there's swelling, and I was just encouraging him like, you know, there's just sometimes that our bodies hold us back, mm-hmm. And uh, that's how it was for me. Like my body just wasn't ready for the the grind, even though my ACL was fixed. And it was almost like my body did a a pretty gnarly job of like sheltering itself. And then I hit a moment where things got better and I started to feel strong again. I started to feel like I was getting back into my own body, but it took two years. Um, And then once I got back, I was better, not because I jumped higher, but because I had to perform while I was uh, handicapped. (laughs) And so, again, it's another opportunity, Uh, you know, major injury. To me, what happens when you look at people who come back from major injury, they're usually really mentally tough because they had to be to get through it. And so I even think about COVID right now and all the athletes that have been laid off uh, from their seasons, their seasons cut short. I truly think that this moment uh, could create – the environment for those to respond to this moment with, like, gratitude. Like, we're not going to take – you know, when our season gets back, we're not going to take it for granted, are we? I mean, we're going to be so fired up that we have a season, that we have a game. Uh, And I just think it's – the next five to ten years are going to be amazing in athletics because we all know what it feels like to have an ACL injury. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've all been laid off.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, I've had – Oh man, I had all the high schoolers, like a lot of the kids I worked with were talking, oh my God, we're not going to have a season. We're not going to have a season. A lot of them have gotten very lucky. You know, they, their schools have taken tons of precautions and all that. But to, to really look at it like that, it is, you know, you basically have everything stripped away. You have to mentally look forward and say, do I really want this now? And then let's reevaluate everything. And I've seen it more in the ones that are hungry, than the ones that have already had it and don't feel like they have to continue to prove it. And I don't think it goes in correlation with like the scholarship athletes compared to the high school varsity athletes. I just think it's all mental. And I think I've really, and I'm seeing it more, I'm really happy I'm seeing this more and more in younger kids. And it's not a lot, but there's a considerable growth of seeing more mentally tough where they just respond out of pure like nature And they go, okay, I like that. Let's try it. And they go, they understand they're going to fail without understanding that they're going to do it. So when they fail and they get up, they're like, oh, that was pretty cool. Let's try it again. And they continually over and over and over. Kind of like, you know, they slam their head against the wall. But they're like, all right, I understand what it's going to take. And I want to get to the point where I can kind of break through that wall. What's out? What's on the other side?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And... I like the sense of not knowing. So when like when I started Olympic lifting, like a, uh, Olympic weightlifting, uh it was the weak part of my career. Like it was the weak part of my uh, my resume. And so when I started I was looking at numbers and I was like I'm 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 throwing up low numbers and then
1: you reevaluated
0: and started going okay the numbers are relevant now. I'm not competing. So the numbers are relevant. Am I moving well? Do I feel better? And is my is my mental side of, of my life better? And so when I added in those components, my lift changed. You know, everything I did when I woke up changed. How I act changed. And that was one thing I've always wondered about playing on the level that you have played at and that you are playing at still what is that does that mindset have to be like and how do you maintain not a linear progression all the time but how do you maintain that forward movement you know still saying that you have those up and down days mm-hmm. you know i didn't recognize this at the time but i think what really helped
1: was um i think we do really well i call it bookends Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, imagine, imagine you're reading a book that never ends. It's going to be hard to uh, stick with it. You know what I mean? But like, uh, if you have a book, there's a start and then a finish. And what I recognized was even though the national, you know, when you're playing at the highest level in volleyball and you're taking pro contracts and playing on the national team, you have no off season. So I started in May with the national team I finished in September and then like I usually have like 72 hours sometimes to report to the other side of the world to start day one of the next season but what was what we found really interesting my wife as well is that like we got so used to having these these tight seasons these like six month sprints and um and so now with that in view knowing that that was actually like an interesting, helpful, motivational tool to be able to have a start and a stop within six months, a debrief moment. We're starting to talk about like, man, maybe we should schedule, uh, maybe we'll call them vacations, but maybe we should schedule like quarterly retreats uh, to where even for a weekend, like we're working towards the finish of this quarter, even though like our, our jobs aren't like, aren't, our jobs aren't like that. You know, we don't have like a start and you know, but what if we started to have rhythms of um, like stress and then rest? And when we have a healthy balance of stress and rest, I mean, we know that from a lifting standpoint that uh, that it helps us to sort of uh, work from rest versus like working for rest. So especially in America, it's so easy for us. Now maybe now I'm talking more to the parent who's working but it's so easy for us to just like be ha- having this like false sense of like rest in the future. Like I'll rest when I achieve X, Y, and Z or I earn, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, but what if we flipped it and we, what if we inverted the equation and said, actually, I'm going to work from rest. So I'm going to protect rest um, and make sure that I have rhythms built in my life to rest. I'm going to rest on. On Saturday, I'm going to rest on Sunday every week. Uh, I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to go golf. I'm going to go for a walk, whatever. And then every quarter, uh, I'm going to get away for two days with my family. And we're just going to unplug and we're going to reset. We're going to bring out the journals. We're going to debrief what just happened. We're going to think about the future of what we want to happen. And then we're going to start working the plan. Um, That rhythm was instilled in me. Because of my what I had to do, now I'm trying to bring that structure into my life now. Because otherwise, um, you know, if you're watching a never-ending movie, if you're trying to read a never-ending book, um, motivation can definitely wane.
0: Yeah, and I know I, I know with with at least my side with that idea, like the whole business side, it's you know you're still getting up at that five or you're you're staying up late until that midnight one two o'clock, and for me. It once club gets here, it's gonna be a five, six, seven day a week thing. And I know now that I will rather lift at night on my training days instead of get up early mm. on, my, on my training days. I'd rather sleep in till eight o'clock and then get up on those five or six, you know, AM days and then lift at maybe six thirty or seven PM. It making that change and it only happened this week was big for me Mm -hmm. i felt a lot we'll say lighter i had more Mm -hmm. energy i didn't feel like i was trying to wake up per se but it was easier to function easier to move and i was in a better mood knowing i'm going home right after this i'm gonna eat dinner get a shower go to sleep Mm -hmm. And i know doing that and i try and get that that same idea along with the whole whole idea of time management with Mm -hmm. my athletes that way they can do that, and it doesn't feel like it is a rush, or they're compounded with with everything. I have a paper tonight; I'm not gonna be able to do it. You know, simple things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Rest is a totally un- underrated modality. And um, we were telling this to our students uh, last week that, like, you know, what do you think LeBron J- James does on a game day? And you know, people. Couldn't really imagine what that was like, but they were very surprised to like my, I don't know LeBron James, but I, I would bet money that his day on a game day looks like this. Um, wake up, <clears throat> good breakfast, <coughs> excuse me, uh, <clears throat> goes to, um am get <coughs> some water. Goes to a shoot-around practice, uh, probably stretches down, goes to the training room, gets some treatment, goes to the hotel room or his home, uh, eats, and then he goes to sleep. Guaranteed. Uh, guaranteed he's taking a two-hour nap, maybe three, maybe 90 minutes. Every athlete's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and then uh, wakes back up, you know, snack, coffee, and heads back to the gym for the uh, 7 o'clock match. Um, that was the life of an af- a pro athlete. And so when I was starting to think through that of just like, man, when I was at my peak in terms of how I felt, that was my lifestyle. But here I am trying to go to Tokyo as an athlete, you know, compete. So I'm waking up at, I was waking up at like four in the morning. I had office hours with my business team from five to seven. I would go over and train from eight to 10 And it was just like this regimented thing where there was no rest at all. And there's no, you know, we can't thrive under those conditions. And so I started to recognize that like, man, you know, sleep, especially in the American lifestyle is so underrated. When you're in Europe, uh, the entire city shuts down for siesta. It's like a thing. And it's not because they're lazy. It's because they value family. They come down, you know, all the kids come back from school. Everybody eats a meal for lunch together. And then everyone sleeps for like 30 minutes or three hours. And then the city opens back up. It's a great lifestyle and who knows, maybe with COVID, maybe we're more open than we were to testing out some of these other ideals uh, in in, in lifestyles.
0: Yeah, and I know uh, another thing when it comes down to the whole idea of getting that family feel, whether it is with your family and you kind of reconnect, or it's with your teammates and your friends, is understanding, you know, being empathetic with people and knowing that, you know, each struggle is not the same, And that if you can help that other person through that struggle, it will probably make your struggle a lot easier. Mm -hmm. When you start opening up and you do all those things, you know, I I think there does need to be that break in the middle of the day or wherever it is to kind of sit and not so much, you know, deep thought and think about everything and try and change everything immediately, but to kind of line everything back up. Mm -hmm. Say, what do I have to do today? Or what do I have to prep for tomorrow? Or whatever their game plan is. I think the easier thing is just getting them to kind of line everything together and, you know, see, see how they're going to do it. The idea of being a human being first, like while you're playing pro and, you know, everything during your career, being a human being first and being a machine second when it comes to training and balancing family.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, thankfully, um, what's difficult is the travel, right, with the national team. But when we were playing pro, it was actually really conducive for family life because uh, half of our games were home. We weren't going for long periods of time, and they got to come to the matches. So that was really good. But the idea of being a machine was something that you always had to balance because when people start to pay you to play, they start to get in their minds that, that you're a video game character, and yep. I, I bought Reed and he passes, you know, at a 3.0 and he hits at this and he serves at this. And when there's a dip in one of those, they put on these weird expectations of like, hey, I, I'm paying you. You should be performing. And that's not, we're not machines. Um, so whenever that would happen for me, when I started to feel like the noise, the, the clutter, the chatter around me was starting to uh, influence me. Um, I would just try to reconnect with my own personal why. Like, why am I doing this? Um, Okay, I've got this match, and everybody's on me about doing this, that, or the other. But at the end of the day, what do I think about this match? Well, I want to win this match. Why? Because I want to win it because I'm competitive. And I'm going to do everything I can to try to win, not because they want me to win, but because I want to win. So forget what they're saying. And that would always center me. And I think for all the young athletes as well, when when you're playing for other people, um, it just, uh, it cracks under pressure. You got to know why you're playing and and why, um, you know, when the pressure mounts, you're going to be ready to step up for yourself quicker than you're going to be ready to step up for somebody else's expectations for you.
0: Yeah, I know um, that's usually that first thing, just like you said, with the younger athletes, trying to learn that why. And it's one of those, I, I try and tell them that, you you know how to fix all your problems but you don't know how to use your tools that you have yet and it's about learning each tool as that situation comes in and that's why i love getting them to a point to where i'm not holding their hand any longer and i'm kind of just i just want to lead like here I want you to problem solve. I want to see what, you, what your logic is like. I want to see why you do it. And I kind of want to watch those gears turn, lock into place, and then start moving each other. So I love the the whole human condition where they they want to go out and test theories just for the pure joy of, let's try and figure this out. I want mm-hmm. to see. I want to see what I can and can't do. I want to see what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's what makes our fields so great is we have that opportunity literally every day.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, you can't, you can't always do it sometimes because of money, finances, whatever the reason is. And I think a lot of it usually revolves around money where you're kind of limited sometimes, but sometimes you can do the most with the least. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it is like the simplest message or simplicity in itself is so huge with athletes or huge with really anybody. To where they can realize that you don't need everything in the world in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish Mm i i i love the fact that i can talk to someone like you through this and still learn Mm -hmm. i I still get to learn and it's what's awesome to me is this all came out of just a simple you know simple question you know would, would you mind spending some time and that's Really, I think the wonderful part about being a community.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all in this together. And uh, I think I still believe sports is one of our greatest leadership development pipelines. Um, and I think as coaches and trainers, it's it's our obligation to fight for the purity of sport. Um, like anything, it, it gets commercialized, monetized, and... Um, Right now, there's this hyper focus on, on the, the junior world, uh, and uh, we actually did a deep dive into sort of the stats, and it's really interesting. So, in America, in youth sports, let's call it 10 and under, um, the language that we use is come play. So, AYSO's mantra is play soccer. It's very inviting. It's, ex- it's non-exclusive. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, open, you know, so, so the opportunity is inexpensive, the language is inviting, and parents love to have their kids engage in youth sports. And we have in America about 44 million kids that play youth sports. Um, but there's this interesting transition that happens between youth and junior, and the language starts to shift. So instead of come play, it's I could teach you to play like a pro. And, you know, come to my exclusive thing. Um, it's expensive. Um, and uh, but, but my methodology is going to help you be the best, right? Uh, and what's really interesting is when we do that, 44 million participants gets knocked down to 8 million. So we have tremendous attrition. And I'm saying to myself, like, man, okay, I get it. There needs, there needs to be elite levels. Um, but is that because... Like, what's creating that? The, the, the benefit of sport is to, to grow leaders, and our world desperately needs leaders. So, we need to fight for the development of, of sports and inclusion so that we can develop more leaders and better leaders. Um, and then, you know, obviously, how many people actually go to college or make, make it to pro? It's even smaller. And then, the, the, the general message at that moment when we get out of our sport by the, um, you know, uh, the governing bodies, and it's not their fault, nobody's doing this consciously, this is just what's happening because of the economics, is uh, you had a great experience in whatever sport, that's awesome, you didn't make it to be a pro, that's totally fine, uh, why don't you, can I show you your seat and you become a fan now? And now you come watch those that can play and, you know, we at NSAN are basically saying, like, no, forget that. Like, let's create a, a space for everyone to keep playing and to play beyond. Because, again, we've, we've already recognized that the value in sport is in competing and playing, not in playing at a high level. Now, those of us that want to play at a high level, we keep pressing the limits. We keep trying to get better. Um, but the real value, I think, in sport is, is how it shapes us as human beings. Yeah.
0: So, what what advice would you give to me as a club director to, kind of, be able to bring that more to my program? I mean, within within any age group, any demographic, any anything.
1: Um, I think you know having um, having programming that is um, well. So, I mean, I have I have lots of ideas, but I haven't tested it. So I'm not, I've never been in your shoes. So it would be inappropriate for me to like leverage um, actual like advice. But questions that I would ask would be, um, could we, could we rethink how many people we have on a roster? Like what if we just made teams of eight and two teams of eight practice together at the same time, but on a tournament time, everybody's playing, you know, so nobody's worried about not playing. you know what would it look like if um, I never did privates? What if I only did semi privates? Because um, it's hard to do drills that that really escalate um, your status, like your skill level, by yourself. <laughs> uh, but obviously, the economics of it makes sense. I, I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars to to run me through passing for an hour. It's like okay. Um, so I, I, I'm not dogging that, but I'm wondering, could we create environments that, that are more team-focused, more um, get, getting everybody involved, everybody moving? Um, parents, can we create programming for parents to where they don't sit there and harp on their kid not doing this or not doing that? Parents, put your phone down, stop yelling at the coaches, and we're going to move you because... It's, you're going to feel better, you're going to get fit, and it's going to be awesome. So those are just some of the things I would throw out in a meeting, but I, I certainly like, am
0: in no position. I really like the parent idea to get them involved in some way because mm-hmm. I think that would get them – I think there would be a lot more appreciation for what's like the time being put in. Um, that helps me a lot. Um, I really appreciate it because all those questions, I mean, they bring up great points. And I, I'll be honest, I never thought about the – semi private to private with the intensity. Cause I mean, you can, you can run th- somebody through a gauntlet with passing in certain ways, but yeah, there's a certain team dynamic that you'll never be able to attain. So it is one of those small things. I like, can never crossed my mind. So yeah, yeah, I, w- I definitely will explore that for sure. Um, so I'm not going to hold you up any longer. Um, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. What is uh, actually, I do have two questions for you. Um, what is your preferred, um, character trait for a, a setter, a middle, a pin hitter and a libero? So for each one, Uh,
1: a setter has to be the leader. Um, they have to be able to manage different personalities. They have to uh, develop relationships with all of their players. Uh, there needs to be mutual respect. So I think the setter has to be able to be uh, a leader in the sense of I'm, I'm, I'm able to modulate how I communicate to my different players in a way that gets them to play their best and to feel supported by me. Um, you know, So it's kind of like a coach on the court. In the sense of the relationship, but not in the sense of I'm teaching you how to play. Um, I think for an outside hitter, I think it's uh, you're the worker bee. Um, it, the the ball starts with you and finishes you, with you a lot of times, and and I think um, especially younger younger outsides uh, need to know that the two skills that impact points won and lost more than any other are serving and passing Um, because we have so much data now to show that the efficiency of the offense is determined by where the setter is setting the ball. So if the setter is, so it's called, we call it location of pass. Mm. So wherever we pass the ball, we now have a, a number to associate it with. If we pass it perfect at the net, we know that the best teams in the world are citing out you know, 74, 75%. Uh, at the 10-foot line, it drops to like 65%. You know, 25 feet, now we're at like 49%. So with that in mind, if I'm an outside hitter and I'm overly focused on my own attacks, I'm missing the point. So I'm a worker bee, but I'm I'm really thinking about the past. That's what I, that's the biggest thing that I could bring to winning points is can I, can I put this ball in a spot to where um, we have a high efficiency rate. Now, all of the players, uh, young players, especially that ask me like, I want to be a better leader. How do I be a better leader? And I say to them, be a better server. Like, don't worry about coaching your other teammates. Don't worry about being the rah-rah person put your time and energy into being a better server because you can lead your team by scoring points from the service line. So because what I just said about data and where the pass is, as a server, how do I swing the numbers in my favor? Uh, Let's say my team is down a few points and we really need a point. Well, instead of trying to go back there and all or nothing ace, let me get the pass to 25 feet because now it's a 50-50 shot, we're gonna score the point. That's way better than 25%, right? Yes. Um, the middle blocker, I think, what would be the tr- character trait? I think it would be versatility, like, uh, and just awareness, spatial awareness. I mean, you're having to, like, pop around all over the place. You're a decoy. Your timing really impacts other people's timing. But really, you just have to be committed to, I'm willing to jump, max jump, and not get set. Like, like that has to just like because if i if i if i recognize that i don't think i'm going to get set and i don't jump like you're you're killing the offense right and then i think the opposite um i mean obviously you're the bailout guy or girl you know you're bailing your team out but i think that like you know so i played with max mihailov one of the best uh opposite yeah, i played with clay stanley but the yes. reason i brought up uh, max is that I remember it was, we were playing for Zenit Kazan. It was the best team in the world, and he was young, and Alekno was the head coach, was, was the Russian national team coach also, and Elekno had to work on Max to say, Max, you're not a machine. We don't expect you to kill every ball. Find ways to disrupt the other team when you're not in a good spot. We're going to give you so many balls that you have to get it out of your mind that you need to kill it every time. Start figuring out how to open-hand tip it. Find the setter. Make the libero set. And if the libero sets, that means that you've taken – like if you give the ball to the setter, now they can't run a a four-hitter offense. The setter probably passes it to the libero. The libero now has two high ball options. So you've just increased our chances of getting the ball back. So those are how I would, off the top of my head, um, react to the different – things that the different positions are thinking about.
0: Uh, What about uh, libero?
1: Libero, I think the libero, I think it's important for the libero. Energy came to mind right off the top of my back, uh, right off the top of my head. I mean, obviously you gotta be a scrapper, uh, high, high communicator. I mean, like you've gotta be running the show from the passing line. Who seems what, this server's doing that. Let's go And high energy. I think um you know this the 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 liberos that I played with that have brought that element to me they're bringing something more than just I'm a good passer um the liberos that are quiet and docile and almost like insecure um I think they could be the best passer in the world and I think they're hurting their team. I think they need to step outside and, and um be a high energy high vocal personality. Okay. And the last
0: thing I've got uh, to ask is um, what's the best piece of advice you've gotten throughout your career?
1: Best piece of advice. Um, I mean, there's so many. i played for some of the best coaches of all time. Uh, But there was one one statement that I really liked. um, And Hugh would reference it a lot. Hugh McCutcheon, uh, you don't know until you go. Um, you know, we did a drill today at the beach where we were working on, uh, reacting to, uh, like, we don't know, we're holding two tennis balls. I throw one up and you got to react to it while going a different direction. And what we noticed is that our brains have developed like this field of expectation. And as soon as it's like, as long as the ball is within that field of expectation of possibility, then uh, my brain does not say abort. And I react and I go try. Whether I get it or not, it doesn't matter. But there's this weird thing that is happening in all of us where when the, when the ball is outside of this sphere of possibility, it, and, and let me say it, it's sphere of perceived possibility. So it's my own perceptions of what's possible. As soon as it gets outside of that, my brain says abort and I stand up. And these are not not hardworking people, and so we are working on breaking that false perimeter because all it is is a it's an idea, it's a perception, Mm -hmm. and uh, the idea of you don't know till you go is the idea of like if you don't go for it, like certainly you will never get it. But you're gonna if you if you try to train your 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 mind to just see and react and start to like expand the borders of your own poss- perceived possibilities, you start to surprise yourself more often than not. And then all of a sudden, there are no boundaries. And we said as a we had a debrief meeting before I got on this call, is that if that's the only thing that our company does, the only contribution we make, then we have, we have done humankind a great service by taking, people beyond what their current perceived possibilities are and expanding that. Uh, so that would probably be my best um, piece of advice. You don't know until you go. Keep pushing the limits of your own perceived limitations.
0: Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much, Reed. Um, this has been like a big bucket list item for me. For- awesome. A- so um, I-, I couldn't thank you enough for taking time out of your day. I know you're extremely busy. So I just want to say thank you to you and your assistant. Um, You guys have made me extremely happy and giddy as like a little kid again. So awesome. And and I'm definitely going to keep track with Insane and everything you're doing.
1: Awesome. Sounds great. Thanks so much. All the best.
0: All right. Thanks. Have a good day.